In the last episode, we made a case for a family-integrated approach to church. Let's move next to consider the Christian education of children. Now, I admit that this section, um, you know, deserves a more in-depth and nuanced treatment than I can do here. And we may come back to it at another time to consider more nuanced details. But I'm gonna be laying out broad strokes here. So take what is said here with a, you know, a salty green. Uh, we're establishing the main principles, not getting into all the details about the what ifs and what about this and that and legitimate exceptions, okay? Um, the main principle that I'm trying to lay out here is, and argue for is that public school should not be considered a legitimate option for Christian parents to educate their children. In fact, we should have never had public schools to begin with because they were rebellious from the start. And this is, this is why they have all turned away from the Lord. This decline of the public school system has been predicted now for a long time. R.L. Dabney in the 19th century wrote that, quote, we have seen that there, that's the schools, complete secularization is logically inevitable. Christians must prepare themselves then for the following results. All prayer, catechism, and Bibles will ultimately be driven out of the schools. And Dabney wrote that in the 19th century in his book on secular education. When Dabney wrote those words, the schools were actually largely controlled by Christians and had Bibles, prayers, and even catechisms in them. However, God had never given the responsibility of the education of the next generation to the civil government in scripture. That duty was given to their parents. Thus, although well-meaning, they were trying to get Christian fruit to, to grow on a secularist tree. So the public school system is not a legitimate or biblical option under normative circumstances for Christian parents to consider in the education of their children. In special cases, such as um, single parent homes or special needs kids, etc., every effort should be made to ensure that children still have a distinctly Christian education to the best of the parents' abilities with the support of their local church community. Now, that's my main thesis. It's a tall order. So let's unpack it now. The Theotivity Podcast. Theotivity is the place where theology and creativity come together. Here you'll find audio narration of articles, episodes exploring the faith, culture, the arts and media, systematic theology, apologetics, guest interviews with Christian thinkers, creatives, pastors, theologians, and much more. At Theotivity.com, you'll find articles and resources to help you grow in your faith, as well as a portfolio of creative works. Like, share, and subscribe to stay up to date on the latest content and talk about, firstly, the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I believe that the convictions that lead to a family-integrated ministry approach also have ramifications for how Christians should think about educating their children and would preclude gov public government-run education as a legitimately faithful way or ideal first choice of discipling children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. This is especially true in our day, where the public school curriculum is overtly anti-Christian. It's not just that it's non-Christian or secular. Modern curriculum is actually actively against the Christian worldview. It's not neutral now, nor has it ever been. Education is either according to Christ or against Christ because it's, because it's, it's in Christ that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found. That's Colossians 2.3. All of them, none of them are left out. Thus, it is questionable for all Christian father 
um, you know, that if, if a Christian father willingly and knowingly gives his children over to the state-run schools um, of secular pagans for instruction and, in, and education from an anti-Christian worldview for the majority of their productive waking hours, right? There, there's no neutrality. Sometimes we assume that while it is, you know, clear that different religions come from opposing worldviews, somehow we think that education is neutral. But it's simply not the case. All of life is ultimately religious because everyone must have starting presuppositions which are based on certain faith commitments. You, you can refer to my previous articles and episodes on presuppositional apologetics for a little bit more on that. Now, as Pastor Doug Wilson notes, he says that, quote, education is fundamentally religious. Consequently, there is no question about whether a morality will be imposed in that education, but rather which morality will be imposed. Christians and assorted traditionalists who want a secular school system to instill anything other than secular ethics are wanting something that has never happened and can never happen. That's in Wilson's book, The Case for Classical Christian Education. Now, even subjects like math, science, and geography have religious presuppositions. So for example, why does math work in a chance universe? Why is science even possible if we are you know, randomly evolved from a cosmic goop? Think about it, right? How can we trust our sensory perceptions, right? Um, to give us accurate knowledge of the world if Life is not designed by a faithful designer who is, uh, but instead is like, you know, randomly evolved through an unguided process. Wouldn't that mean that there's a chance then that some of us may have evolved our, you know, eyesight or hearing or touch or taste or smell different from others? How then could we have, you know, any kind of confidence in the observations that we make with those senses that form the basis of scientific inquiry? The answer to all of these questions involves presuppositions which must be established on faith in some worldview. And this worldview is what is being imparted on a deeper level in the education process. So as that you know, great prince of preachers, Charles Spurgeon once said, he said, quote, to neglect the instruction of our offspring is worse than brutish. Family religion is necessary for the nation, for the family itself, and for the church of God. Would that parents would awaken to the sense of the importance of this matter. Now, you have to understand that this, this truism of like teacher, like student, it holds true, right? In every education, there is an underlying worldview that's going to be imparted to the students. And Jesus himself actually affirmed this. He said this in Luke 6 verse 40, that, quote, a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he's fully trained, will be like his teacher. So the question is, what will your child be like when he's fully trained by God-hating pagans? And, you know, that's not being mean to Mrs. Penny Smith, their fourth grade geography teacher. That's being biblical. Because we all were once children of wrath, enemies of God and rebel sinners before grace came and saved us. And if you have a non-Christian teacher, then according to Jesus, when you've been fully trained by them, you'll be like them, right? We don't even need to bring in the question of the LGBTQ agenda that is being rammed down the public school curriculum or other concerning ideologies like critical race theory or the fact that ninth grade math has an anti-racist activism inserted into the curriculum, 
or that science has been used to normalize racism and is part of the colonialist oppression which we must be liberated from, or the plethora of other legitimate concerns about the Canadian and US public school systems brought to the fore by some people like you know Pierre Barnes of Exposing Sogi123, James Pugh of Woke Watch Canada, or the Canadian Gender Report, or the equivalents in the US and other countries. Right? We simply need to, un to consider that Jesus' words are true, that every student will become like their teacher. So how can we expect little impressionable minds to be able to distinguish between you know, the bits of true information um, in their science or language or social studies class from the false bits and parts of a non-Christian worldview? They can't. That's why Christian parents are obligated by scripture to give their children a Christian education. And don't worry, we're going to get to those passages soon. The Lord will not hold us guiltless if we neglect our duty towards our children and his commands concerning the education and upbringing. Right? He didn't hold Eli guiltless for the unfaithfulness of his sons. Right? In 2 Samuel verse, uh, chapter 2, verses 12, it says that now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. And scripture actually holds Eli responsible for his sons because he neglected to discipline and disciple them. Now, eventually, this led to the Lord actually putting Eli's sons to death. Even the good king um, Hezekiah, he ended his life kind of pitifully. In Isaiah um, chapters 38 to 39, after being mercifully granted 15 more years of life by the Lord, when he was, you know, rebuked for his pride of showing his treasures to the men of Babylon, um, the Lord told him that his sons would be carried off uh, uh, to, to be castrated and, um, you know, become Babylonian slaves. Hezekiah, instead of repenting and doing all that he could in those last 15 years of life to fortify the kingdom and prepare his sons, he actually sat back easy because he took it that that meant, well, at least I'll have peace in my days. Such selfish and short-sighted thinking, that's wicked, right? And it shouldn't be found among us. So let us not finish like that, but finish strong to the end. So now um, let's return to look to the texts of scripture of Psalm 78 and Deuteronomy 6, which are often illegitimately used to support kids' ministry. Um, and we're going to see what they actually are clearly teaching us, both in terms of their relevance for family ministries and churches, but also more properly in terms of the obligations of parents to children for their education. Let's start off with Psalm 78. I'm going to read verses 1 to 8. It says, Give ear, O my people, to my teaching, and clear, incline your, your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that have been heard and known, that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from uh, their children, but tell them to the, to the coming generation, the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might, and the wonders that he has done. He has established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach their children that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children, so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments, and that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. Now, let's start by making some basic observations of the text, right? Who is the text directed to? Specifically, it's directed to fathers and by implication, parents, 
right, that they, that is, you know, the parents and especially fathers, will not fail to tell the children the deeds of the Lord. That's verse 4. And to teach them God's law. Now, furthermore, consider the original audience. This is a psalm that would have been sung by the general congregation of the people of God during worship in the Old Testament. Parents would have been reminded of their duties to disciple and to educate their children during worship, and children would have also been instructed by this song. Now, I don't see how we can take a text like this and then twist it to say, oh, well, that means that fathers are to give their children over to kids' ministry workers to disciple and educate them and keep them out of the gathering of God's people for worship. Right? Like, no one would ever come up with that idea from reading this text. Kids' ministry workers are not the ones addressed to um, instruct their children as the psalm repeats over and over. Neither does this psalm permit parents to give um, their, ki their kids over to sec a secular state school, for example, for discipleship, which is exactly what education is. It's discipleship. Right? This psalm is rightly understood as directed to parents and specifically to fathers as heads of their households. Now, furthermore, beyond just its implications for our church's approach to family ministries, this obviously has implications for parents' roles in the home for overseeing the education of their children. The rest of the psalm actually goes on to recount the redemptive history of God with Israel, and you know there's an important lesson there for us to in, in this historical psalm. James Montgomery Boyce, in his commentary on this psalm, he says that, quote, <clears throat> It recounts the history of the people of Israel in order to draw lessons from it. Lessons as to who God is, what he has done, how the people responded to him wrongly in the past, and how they should learn from those past failures today. His lesson is that history must not repeat itself. And that's from his expositional, expositional um, commentary. Now, simply put, one of the duties of parents laid out here is to ensure that their children learn from history so as to not repeat its mistakes. And this is why the psalmist says that he will use parables in verse 2, right? To communicate things his father had told. He's passing down generational wisdom and inviting his hearers to draw conclusions by the use of historical stories that communicate some moral lesson or wisdom. And that's what basically a parable is. Yet, how much of this has been forsaken today? How many parents tell stories of the past? Obviously, they should tell stories of their spiritual past given to us in the pages of scripture, right? Which, which tell of the story of redemption in history. But they should also tell the stories of their, of their country and their family's mistakes and successes in order to learn from them. These sorts of things are certainly not being um, you know, taught in the vast majority of public schools. And when they are, they tend to be taught with a certain leftist bent. History always has a didactic function, that is, it's teaching something. And depending on how it is uh, framed, it can greatly affect the lessons that are learned from it. And this is one of the many reasons why we see history repeating itself again and again with the rise of Marxist ideologies and ungodly philosophies. Now, notice also what goal parents are aiming towards in verse 7. Right? that our children should set their hopes in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. Right? Bible commentator uh, Derek Kidner actually points out that, quote, the three phrases of verse 7 show a threefold chord of faith as personal trust, informed and humble thinking, and an obedient will. Right? That's from his commentary uh, on the psalm. Now, that is what 
the goal of the parents' instruction and discipleship of their children should be. And this is primarily their duty. Not one to give their children away to non-Christians to hope that they do that. Thus, the goal of Christian education is not just data transfer. It's rather the centrality of worship as the end goal. And this is why it cannot be achieved by secular means. Right? We know that biblically worship is central to life and therefore it must be central to the education that prepares you for that life. As R.L. Dabney notes, he says, quote, education is the nurture and development of the whole man for his proper end. That end must be conceived rightly in order to understand the process and even man's earthly end is predominantly moral. In light of this, Kidner is actually right when he observes that Quote, scripture has no room for parental neutrality, right? So whatever route parents take um, and decide for the education of their kids, either public schools, private classical um, Christian schools, or homeschooling, these are not neutral decisions, right? Some worldview is going to be imparted. It's just a question of which one. Now, let's take a look at Deuteronomy 6. In many ways, Asaph in that psalm was only reiterating what Moses had already said many years before to the people of God. Moses opens Deuteronomy chapter 6 this way. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over, to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your sons and your sons' sons, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. That's Deuteronomy 6, verses 1 to 2. Notice again how the context sets the audience. Moses is primarily addressing parents. It is then continues with the Shema, which simply means um, here in Hebrew, right? Shema means here, and would have been often repeated by every faithful Jew. It goes this way, Shema O Israel, right? So here, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. These words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hands and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them down on the doorsteps of your house and on your gates. That's verses four to nine. Now note that this is nested also in the context of what Jesus calls the greatest commandment. And, and when God gave his people his word through Moses, he obligated the parents to teach it to their children. That's how important this is. You know, Bible commentator Ajith Fernand, he comments this way, he says, quote, teach them diligently is the translation of a single word that means repeat. And this is reflected in the NLT rendering, repeat them again and again to your children. The truths of God's word might not go into the mind and transform our lives after one hearing. I mean, if you have small kids, you probably know that already, right? Therefore, they need to be repeated often. And the primary place where this takes place in the lives of children is in the home. The teaching is to be done diligently, which again has the idea of repeating. This is not an occasional thing that parents do. It's a regular part of the life of the family. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he shall not depart from it. Proverbs 22, 6, right? Uh, now, because of the need to teach repeatedly and diligently, it makes sense why God would give this primary responsibility to parents of children. 
Much of this would take place in the home, as the next verses imply. God's word is to be the constant and regular topic of conversations around the home and um, throughout the life of four families, right? Um, as such, mealtimes together are opportunities for these conversations, as well as when the kids are up in you know the morning with morning devotions and when they're you know being put to bed with a bedtime story or reading from the Bible. They are to think about God both to start the day and to end the day. God's word should be bookending, so to speak, every day. Yet this very thing is often neglected or placed in a lower priority in our day-to-day um, lives. Right? Fernando actually comments this way. He says, quote, Considering the volume and content of what we are exposed to these days, we should be spending more time than the people in the Old Testament times counteracting the anti-Christian messages that we encounter. Clearly, this is an area that needs urgent attention. I couldn't agree more. This responsibility falls primarily upon parents to give their children a decidedly and distinctly Christian education. Again, voices and Cyflassy comments. Let me make this relevant to our time by saying that one thing we are to abhor as Christian parents is values-neutral education. Our culture wants it, but in fact, it fights for it. But then we get a world in which the young you know, avoid work, laugh at honesty, steal, and in some cases kill with no apparent conscience. We should not be surprised. We should struggle to make sure that our children are taught moral, morality grounded in the character of God and supported by the life and power of our Savior, Jesus Christ. You must teach this in our homes. If necessary, you must teach, teach it in our own schools. When the country's schools uh, begin to destroy what we believe and hold there. We are already at that point, right? That, that Boyce describes. And Beyond that, I think that it's high time that Christians wake up to that reality. As Vody Bauckham says, we cannot keep on giving our kids to Caesar and then wonder why they keep coming back as Romans. Some illustrative examples. A few examples to illustrate this will have to suffice, but many more could be multiplied. Um, in a 2001 article from the Canadian Gender Report, the author notes, the Toronto School District Board th- is discussing how to permit LGBTQ students to change their names in their databases without parental consent. Also, the TDSB at Boro, Bo, Bomore Road um, grade 7 students were instructed that their parents and grandparents may not be as informed about gender as the students and what's implied your parents don't understand gender and have no authority on this matter. So kids shouldn't even listen to them. Parents in Hamilton, um, in the Wentworth uh, School Board, are denied access to their Learn, Disrupt, Rebuild curriculum designed to address the twin pandemics of COVID and anti-Black racism. Now, while I know some Christian parents who have kids in the public system that do their best to be involved, know the teachers and they know the curriculum, realistically speaking, it is impossible to stay on top of absolutely everything that your child is exposed to in the public system. That's just the reality. This is especially difficult if you have an activist teacher who's committed to hiding such curriculum from parents. Actually, a National Post article in 2023, just this year, noted how children in schools can gender transition and be referred to the, the gender clinics without their parents' knowledge or approval, stating, quote, it's just one way the education system has become intimately involved in the transgender process, which affects an exponentially growing number of young Canadians. 
Samuel Say, who addresses a lot of issues of race from a Christian perspective, notes the prevalence of critical race theory in the Canadian education system. The Peel District School Board has addressed courses, has added courses, sorry, to its curriculum that replaces that um, and challenge the dominant colonial narratives and promote student epistemologies in education from kindergarten to uh, grade 12. And though many people uh, are still in denial over the prevalence of critical race theory in schools, a presentation from the Peel District School Board explicitly says some of these courses, quote, explore contemporary black culture in Canada through the lens of critical race theory. The website exposing Sogi123, it lists many books used in Canadian public schools uh, for their sex ed curriculum. S such titles include It's Perfectly Normal, This Book is Gay, Quick and Easy Guide to Queer and Trans Identities, The Gender Book, All Boys Aren't Blue, all of which teach radical LGBTQ plus and gender theory to kids. Some of these books are simply pornographic and you can check out the links for yourself. These books can only be considered as grooming and are actively being used in public schools in Canada. With the fact that many kids can't even remember what they had for lunch, it's quite questionable to expect them to remember to debrief with their parents about everything the teacher taught them or what they read through readily accessible resources on their bookshelves. Now, just a few examples will have to suffice. Here are some actual books found in Canadian public school curriculums. It's called SOGI123. It stands for Sexuality, um, Sexual Orientation and Gender Identity. The website already should raise some red flags, but just wait until you see the books used in this curriculum. Now, here are a few of the books used in the curriculum. And for those who are just listening on podcasts, I'm gonna be putting these up on the screen. <coughs> the agenda these, these days um, is not subtle. In times past, Christian parents might have been able to claim ignorance, but now it's been made clear as the fundamental worldview in the public schools has not changed and it's moving towards its logical end. All right, Chanel Fall, uh, or Fah, I don't know how to pronounce her last name, I'm sorry if I'm butchering it, but she's a former Ontario teacher and in an article on Woke Watch Canada exposes the pressure towards ideological conformity to the leftist agenda in Ontario. Um, public schools, stating, quote, in February of 2021, I posted a non-politically correct Facebook comment in which I suggested teachers should not indoctrinate kids, but uh, teach them how to think for themselves. That shouldn't be controversial, but anyways, continue on. I added that they should model kindness and speak out against all forms of discrimination, even discrimination brought on by the anti-racist movement, which claims that all white people are racist by default. Anyone who works in a school knows that this last part especially is a big no-no. Even I knew that. To be equally concerned with the treatment of all people is wrong because only non-white people deserve any kind of sympathy or consideration in this new progressive era. She goes on to document the pressures and investigations she faced from the school board just for questioning the prevailing orthodoxy. With those sorts of things going on, there's immense pressure on many public school teachers to conform. And while this may not be the same everywhere and in every school, it is something that is happening. With such pressures, how would a parent even know if their child's public school is operating in this way when the teachers themselves are being pressured to silence? Let's jump back to scripture, Ephesians 6. So in the New Testament, 
One of the most relevant texts for our consideration is Paul's instructions in Ephesians 6. Ephesians 6, 4 commands fathers not to exasperate their children, but rather to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. There's both a negative and a positive command for us as fathers. Right? The negative command, do, don't provoke. So negatively, we're not to provoke our children to anger. And that Greek verb, right, parogizo, um, is a derivative of the noun parogismos, right, which means anger. And according to Luanida, it means to cause someone to become provoked or quite angry. Right? John Calvin actually comments on this passage that fathers are exhorted not to irritate their children by unreasonable severity. This would excite hatred and would lead them to throw off the yoke altogether. Kind and liberal treatment it has rather a tendency to cherish reverence for their parents and to increase the cheerfulness and activity of their obedience, while a harsh and unkind manner rouses them to obstinacy and destroys the natural affections. Right? Lincoln, actually, in his commentary on Ephesians, notes this. He says, quote, Fathers are made responsible for ensuring that they do not provoke anger in their children. This involves avoiding attitudes, words, and actions which would drive the child to angry exasperation or resentment, and thus rules out excessively severe discipline, uh, unreasonably harsh demands, abuse of authority, arbitrariness, unfairness, constant nagging and condemnation, subjecting the child to humiliation, and all forms of gross insensitivity to the child's needs and sensibilities. Now, why this emphasis and warning for fathers? Because God knows that our our sinful um, propensities lead us in these directions towards harshness, severity, authoritarianism, and condemnation of our kids. God has made men to be uh, fighters and warriors. However, the, the home is actually not the battlefield, and our children are not the enemy. They're actually our weapons, according to Psalm 127, arrows in our quiver, right? Now, while training godly children requires discipline and correction, it's to be done in a way that does not exasperate the child. And this is why in Colossians 3.1, Paul reminds us, quote, Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Anyone who has ever had a father who provoked them, teased them, constantly put them down or harassed them, knows just how damaging that can be and how much resentment and hatred can be built up because of it. It inflicts father wounds that take a lifetime to heal. Fathers are powerful in shaping their children's future. And this is why scripture exhorts them and warns them um, in this way. Now, there's also a positive command, bring them up. Paul contrasts the negative command not to provoke children with the positive command that conveys the idea of gentleness and forbearance. The Reformation Study Bible actually notes here that the command, ek trefete, suggests the idea of nurturing and helping to flourish. For context, it is important to know that in the Greco-Roman world, according to the ancient writers such as Plutarch and Prudentius, after age seven until about 16, the father was in charge of a son's education. He would sometimes um, enlist a tutor to help. But besides learning literacy, the father would also oversee training in ethics, religion, household management, philosophy, um, public service, and exercises in developing strong rhetorical skills. Right? This was the duty of every father in the first century Roman Empire. So Paul was actually agreeing with the Greco-Roman and Jewish culture of making fathers responsible for the education and religious upbringing of their children. However, the focus is shifted here. 
note that Paul specifies that is not just to bring them up in any way or even according to the Roman ways. Grammatically, Paul denotes that um, what children are to be brought up in using the dative case for the two nouns there, right? In the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. The Lord was Paul's common shorthand way um, to refer to the Lord Jesus Christ. The discipline and instruction must then be explicitly Christian, right? These two Greek terms are instructive for us. The word nuthesia, translated instruction, has to do with instruction to correct behavior and belief. Bidag, which is the most respected um, Greek lexicon, defines it as counsel about avoidance or cessation of an improper course of conduct or admonition, right? So fathers are to provide moral instruction for their children in proper conduct. And this much shouldn't be controversial, right? The Pillar New Testament commentary notes this. It quotes, says, the first word group could refer to education or training in a comprehensive sense or the more specific nuance of discipline or chastisement. Here in Ephesians 6.4, the general sense appears to be in, in view with the second term pointing to the more specific task of the, this training that takes place through verbal admonition or correction, right? Uh, <clears throat> the importance of paideia. Let's talk a little bit about that. The second word is paideia, translated as discipline, and it has a lot more to do um, than a lot of the modern translations actually can communicate. Now, BDAG defines it as providing guidance for responsible living or upbringing. And Lou and Nida define it as to provide instruction with the intent of forming proper habits and behavior. So at the core, the word concerns upbringing in terms of making a child a responsible person with proper habits of living. Various translations render this word as uh, education or training or fear or admonition or Christian worldview or good character, but none of these is um, wholly adequate because there's actually no exact English equivalent. There's more to it than any one of these single word translations can communicate. The early Greeks, they realized the power of building culture intentionally through paideia, this concept of paideia. A, a parallel idea can be actually found in uh, ancient Israel, if you look at Deuteronomy 6. And this is why Paul uses the word um, in Ephesians 6 after quoting from Deuteronomy 6. Okay, so in the ancient Greco-Roman world uh, that Paul was writing to, um, this word paideia had the connotation of bringing up a child to be a good citizen of Rome. And this is what, why, you know, why it's used, for example, in Acts 7.22 to say that Moses was trained in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. That is to say, he was trained in the paideia of the Egyptians to be a good citizen of Egypt's empire. Right? He was enculturated with the values of the Egyptian society to understand how Egypt worked. In Roman society, every adult male was ideally to be trained up in the paideia of Rome to the extent that they had a good understanding of how the Roman Empire worked, its laws, its customs, its values, its politics. They, they were to be fully enculturated to be good and active Roman citizens. An ideal man within the city-state, the polis, would be well-rounded and refined in intellect and morals and physicality, both practical and subject-based schooling, as well as a focus on the socialization of individuals within the aristocratic order of this polis was a part of this training, 
right? The practical aspects of paideia included subjects within the modern designation of the liberal arts. So for example, rhetoric, grammar, and philosophy, as well as scientific disciplines like arithmetic and medicine. Right? Gymnastics and wrestling were actually valued for the effect on the body alongside the moral education, which was imparted by the study of music, poetry, and philosophy. So therefore, this is not a new problem that we face today. The context of the first century church very much mirrors ours today with regards to widespread pagan education and holistic enculturation. Right? It was something that the anti-Nicene church of the first four centuries of Christianity recognized. Right? Since Homer and pagan mythology formed the basis of the Greco-Roman paideia, it presented dangers to the faith of Christians. Right? But to shun the pagan schools for these early Christians actually seemed impossible. Just like today, a lot of Christians look at you know, shunning uh, public schools as impossible. Right? Even Tertullian admitted, he said, quote, how can we reject profane studies without which religious studies are impossible? Tertullian's basic opposition to Hellenism was um, expressed in his frequently quoted, what has Athens to do with Jerusalem and the academy to do with the church? Right? He and many other Christians um, saw the fundamental antithesis between pagan education and the Christian worldview. By the mid third century, we have actually clear evidence that Christian teachers like Origen and others could actually offer a um, complete philosophical education that paralleled that which was offered in the schools all over the Greco-Roman world. In his commentary on Ephesians, Stephen Fowle, he notes that, quote, within the pagan household, the training of the children, especially sons, will be directed to the end of preparing them to fulfill their proper role in the household and in the community at large. In Ephesians, fathers are admonished to form their children to fulfill their proper ends as people of the Lord. That is, the formation of children in the household should be in the light of their identity as Christians, not primarily as members of a specific family or citizens of a specific city. In Ephesians 6, Paul is actually saying that Christian fathers are to bring up their children to be not good citizens of Rome, but of the Lord Jesus Christ and his kingdom. Right? That was radical. This is the Christian's creed. Christ, not Caesar, is Lord. And that's how it was enacted in the home. I don't think that we really grasp just how radical the antithesis between Christ's kingdom and Caesar's kingdom was in the first century for us today as 21st century believers. It was acute enough that, the, that Rome itself eventually would see Christians as a threat to their empire because of their insistence that Christ and not Caesar was Lord of everything, including their kids. And we have to recover this again because we once again are in a time where the state believes and acts as if it were all powerful and as if it owns the next generation. So for example, the state removing children from families which don't go along with their radical agendas. Right? Now, grammatically in Greek, the training and admonition that fathers are to give is described as, as of in the Lord, which could be understood either as a subjective genitive or a genitive of quality. Now, if it's the former, then the text is, um, is indicating that 
that behind the parents stands the Lord himself. And the ultimate concern of the parents is not simply that their children would be obedient to their authority, but that through godly training and admonition, their children would know the Lord himself. Now, if it's the latter, right, a genitive of quality, then it's indicating that the training and admonition are in the sphere of the Lord. That is, it is to be a truly Christian education, right? And this second interpretation actually has the advantage of fitting well with what Paul said earlier in chapter 4, verses 20 to 21 about learning Christ and being taught in him, right? This is speaking to, to education from within a Christian worldview. That's what this verse is saying. As Ben Witherington notes, quote, it is not just any sort of education that is referred to here. It is Christian education, the, ed, the training and admonition of the Lord. Of the Lord can mean either with the Lord in view or with the Lord using the Father as the instructor, and it's probably the, the former. But regardless, both interpretations would require a distinctly Christian education to achieve it. The Association of Classical Christian, Christian Schools defines it this way, quote, Paideia is at one level the transfer of a way of viewing the world from the teacher to the student. At another, it shapes and forms a child in terms of his or her desires, passions, and loves. It is essentially the part of upbringing and education that forms the soul of a human being and is key to the formation of a culture. Put another way, paideia is a description of the values we actually love, the truth we actually believe, and what we assume about the nature of the world. All schools reinforce some sort of paideia. So Christians must change how they think about our education. We have defaulted to thinking within the pagan secular, with the pagan secularists that it's the job of the government to provide your education. However, God gives fathers the tools that they need to do this in his word. Paul affirms this in 2 Timothy 3.16, that one of the things the scripture is profitable for is instruction in right living. That's the same word, paideia, right? God has equipped us and commanded us to ensure that our children receive a Christian education and worldview. And this is not a responsibility that we should take lightly or pass off easily. As the Association of Christian Classical Schools goes on to note, Quote, because it influences each person in a culture, paideia forms a culture. How do we think? How do we vote? How do we marry? You know, how, uh, do we have large families, small families? Do we, um, you know, do we do productive things, start a revolution, or a million actions actually lie on the surface? Layers of influence and supposition lie under each decision. Paideia lies at the deepest level. It is the blueprint of thought, affections, and narrative through which Every one of us views everything because it is the building block of culture. It determines the future of a people. Thus, what we're talking about here is not just your child's education or parents, you know, school choice. What we're talking about will inevitably shape our culture for years to come. We've been actually reaping the fruits of disfigured paideia, of the secular state-run education, when, as we see, you know, our civilizations, which were formerly built on broadly, you know, Christian worldview, crumbling at their foundations. And this is why it's important to recover. As R.L. Dabney noted in his book on secular education, quote, education is the nurture and development of the whole man for his proper end. That end must be conceived rightly in order to understand the process. And even 
uh, man's earthly end is predominantly moral. To raise up your child in the piety of the Lord as Paul instructs and commands means to train him or her to be a good citizen of Christ's kingdom. This simply doesn't happen in secular public schools. Unbelieving teachers are not going to teach your kid how to bow the knee to King Jesus over Caesar. They will instead teach them to continue to look to the government and to the overloaded nanny state for all sorts of things that the government was never given the responsibility to oversee. Right? Scripture gives a very limited role for civil government, and you can refer to my previous articles and episodes for more on that topic. Thus, these scriptures oblige parents to not just give their children an education, but to give them a distinctly Christian education. Supposedly, secular public schools, you know, is, is not a valid way to accomplish this. As um, Stephen C. Perks notes, he says, quote, an education that denies God and his word as the interpretive principle for all things, including all academic uh, disciplines, is an education that implicitly denies the whole of biblical truth and the validity of the Christian faith. To subject our children to such an education is to deny the sovereignty and the lordship of God over our children and thus apostasy from the faith. We are morally obligated to keep our kids out of secular public schools because the scriptures explicitly require that we give them a non-agnostic form of education. That is, an education into the paideia of the Lord. As Perks goes on to note later, he says, quote, either we educate our children in terms of a Christian culture or we'll hand them over to be educated by humanists as pagans. Our actions in this matter will help to determine and shape the culture of the next generation. Now, let's consider some of the um, objections, because right? at this point, I know that there will be a hundred different what-ifs objections uh, about exceptions to the norm, such as single-parent households, etc. Right? However, again, I want to remind you, I'm not addressing all the exceptions here. I'm focusing on making a case for what should be the norm only after we've established the, uh, you know, what's the ideal that we, you know, that, that should be the norm, can we actually consider what do we do now in special circumstances? Only when you have the ideal and the goal clearly defined, can you consider the deviations from the norm, right? We don't have time in this episode to fully consider every situation, but I'm hoping to actually leave you with some good food for thought. So let's consider, um, as by way of illustration, the TGC good faith debate with Jen Wilkin, right? So recently the Gospel Coalition has been doing a series of good faith debates on a variety of controversial topics. And I'm all for debating important topics. However, the TGC seems to tend to push leftward, as has been their pattern recently. And on you know, many of these topics, they've been doing that. One of these TGC you know, good faith debates was on public schools. The person that they had representing the side arguing that Christians should send their kids to public schools was the popular women's teacher, Jen Wilkin. Now, I'm sure that Mrs. Wilkin is probably a fine, pleasant Christian lady who loves the Lord and her kids. That's not in question here, and that's not the point here. I'm not attacking her. However, the arguments that she put forward in this debate are in question because they were, frankly, questionable. I don't have time for a full review of the whole video, and there you know, have been others who've offered such a critique, but I want to pick up 
on one line of reasoning that she put forward, that Christians should try their best to put their kids into public school for the sake of loving their neighbor. <sighs> this is not the first time that the love your neighbor argument has been used by Big Eva to support all sorts of tomfoolery. Right? The argument goes something like this. If all Christians pull their kids out of public schools, then there'll be no Christian witness and the Christian parents who can um, be actively involved in the public schools and that will lead them to get worse and worse and that'll hurt our neighbors, right? Now, on the surface, that seems logical enough and there you know, might be some certain premises that I'd agree with. However, this whole loving my neighbor thing has to be clearly sorted out. Perhaps first, by asking the same question that the Jewish lawyer asked Jesus, who then is my neighbor? But secondly, you have how do, do I love them biblically, right? So to start, I'll just note that Mrs. Wilkins' argument was devoid of much or any scripture really that's in context, specifically about the education of children. And right? she quoted some other scriptures that had nothing to do with the education of children specifically. But that aside, are not the little ones in our own household our closest neighbor, right? What about loving them? Are we not to love the, uh, like, uh, is she saying that, you know, are we to love the stranger a few blocks away from us over the children that God has given us to train up in the Lord in our own homes? I'm sure that when it's put this way, not even Mrs. Wilkin would venture to say such a thing. However, this is the essence of what she was arguing for, knowingly or not, right? We are always having to navigate a network of obligations to others that scripture places on us, right? We have obligations to our spouse, our family, our church members, our community, and strangers. But those obligations are, you know, they sit rightfully in a priority. Scripture itself teaches this principle when it tells us to do good to all, but especially to those of the household of faith in Galatians 6.10. So the next closest relational biblical obligation that we have in that priority list after our spouse is our children. Thus, Christian parents who decide to homeschool or Christian private school their children over sending them to the public schools are not actually neglecting the love of neighbor. They're simply rightly prioritizing which neighbors. Now, furthermore, which is more loving in the long run to our pagan neighbors down the street? Right? To have children who likewise will be inculturated into a secular worldview and are therefore ineffective Christians or to have children who will have a robust Christian worldview and can actually respond to the challenges and needs of the culture. Not to mention that Christian parents could be involved in public school boards regardless of whether or not they send their kids there right? um, if they wanted to. Right? And that's one of the things that our tax payments ensure. And I would definitely support that. right? Like Christian parents go get on a school board. That's a great way to affect cultural change in your local neighborhood. Now, one good thing that Mrs. Wilkins stated is that she's not making the argument of sending kids um, to, to public school as missionaries, right? Because that's a terrible argument that's, that's very popularly put forward. However, even at this point, I think Mrs. Wilkins' point is inconsistent. If Christians are to do their best to send their kids to public school in order to love their neighbors, it kind of implies that you're sending them as missionaries in some sense. I'm presuming that the expectation is that your kids would either be witnessing to the truth of Christianity by being salt and light in their schools, right? 
but I've always thought that it's, you know, especially a weak argument, um, especially so if you're a Baptist, right? Um, because their kids who are in public schools, most of them haven't even been baptized. And this means then that the parents don't even think that they're believers yet, right? And this begs the question as to how they could possibly be missionaries when they're not even saved as yet, right? The public schools are the front lines and we don't send our kids or not yet believers or baby believers to the front lines, right? That's where the mature adults should go. So send in the Christian teachers and the parents, but let's follow what our Bible obliges us to do for our kids. And that is to give them a Christian education. Pastor Doug Wilson rightly notes in his book, The Case for Classical Christian Education, that quote, before we can win the children of this world, we have to stop losing our children to that world. And as we teach them their identity in Christ in such a way that they embrace that identity and the terms of the covenant that define it, they will provide the kind of contrast with our postmodern culture's lost, <coughs> lost children that will make evangelism truly potent. Before we can invite non-believers to participate in our believing culture, we have to have one. And in order to have one, we have to pass the faith on to our children in the spirit and in truth. There are many aspects to this task, but Christian education is right at the center of it. Now let's talk a little bit about state-run education before we close off. We should consider, right, some of the concerns behind state-run public education. Firstly, it, it creates serfs of the state, right? State-run education is an has an implicit motivation to create serfs of the state. Citizens who know nothing of their God-given rights of the constitutions that they live under, which were based on the Christian worldview, in the West at least, right? And who are ignorant of basic economics, logic, and history, and are easy to manipulate and control. So why would the state have the incentive to produce citizens through its education system who will make things harder for them to maintain control, right? I'd simply ask those who have recently gone through the public school system, how much of your charter of rights and system of government do you understand in a meaningful way? Right? Were you ever taught the Judeo-Christian foundations upon which most modern liberal democracies were built? No, probably not. There's also no market incentive to be better. Right? So not only that, state-run education has no market incentive to make it more efficient or higher quality since it has a guaranteed financial subsidization from the government's funding through taxation. Right? Universal education is actually not free. Much of our tax dollars are wasted and mishandled by bureaucrats who never have to reap the consequences of what they do with other people's money. In fact, there are studies that have shown that it's actually far more expensive than private-run education because of the financial incentives for private schools to be run efficiently, right? Because they need to turn a profit. In the US, according to an ABC News report, only 23% of eighth graders tested proficient in math and 39% tested below even the basic level proficiency. According to the nation's report card in 2000, only a third of fourth graders in the US were at a proficient reading level. And in 2001, a report from the Department of Education showed that half of the high school seniors could not perform at the basic level and 32% were only at the basic level. Now in Canada, that holds true, 
that students who go to private schools do better academically on average than public school. Right? The Fraser Institute's rankings shows that a disproportionate amount of top ranking schools are private. And even though only 6% of Canadian children go to private schools, they account for over a third of the top scoring schools. Right? This is because for private schools, there's a market incentive to be better since parents are basically paying twice for their children's education right? through mandatory taxation and additionally for the sometimes expensive private school fees. Now, I'm not arguing necessarily for taking out a second mortgage just to send your kids to private school. I think that there are more cost-effective ways such as homeschooling and classical Christian schools that are subsidized by churches. However, this is simply to illustrate the failure of the public school system due to a lack of market incentive. Even though the government spends massive amounts of money on public education, like if education were privatized, we'd see a dramatic increase in the quality as well as a reduction in the total spending due to the market incentive to be efficient. Right? The state has, was never given the job of education of our children by God in scripture, and therefore it lacks the tools to do it well. It was actually under state-run education that subjects like logic and rhetoric and grammar and even history have been either removed or ruined completely from the public schools, right? And it's, uh, is it any wonder then that, you know, why our societies look the way that they do? Most public school education doesn't teach children what, um, how to think, it teaches them what to think. And obviously there are exceptions here, right? But I speak in generalities so as to not, um, you know, have the argument die the death of a million qualifications. Comparatively speaking, the majority of homeschool and Christian school children outperform the vast majority of public school students. And even if they didn't outperform them on an educational scale, right? even if they um, were poorly educated in math and sciences, etc., I'd still take having a mediocre education from a Christian worldview over a world-class education where I was indoctrinated with secularism and an anti-Christian worldview. You see, because all education is imparting a worldview, because we are always being disciples. It's just a question of by whom and for what kingdom. Let's talk next about the Marxification of education. Now, perhaps one of the most pressing concerns about the public education system is the influence of Marxist ideology, not only in the form of the infiltration of things like critical race theory and LGBTQ and queer theory and other Marxist politics, but also in terms of the approach to education itself, the pedagogy, right? Not many people are aware of the name Paulo Freire. A, he's a Brazilian-born philosopher of education who has radically influenced public ed education. Right? He's no small figure in the public education as uh, the third most cited scholarly author in all the humanities and social sciences. The majority of teachers who are trained to teach in public schools have been trained in Freire's pedagogy, or better called Marxist cult indoctrination. And that's not an overstatement. Right? Many teachers are actually unaware of this because it's cloaked, as all Marxist ideologies are, in the language of compassion and progress. As James Lindsay notes in his book, The Marxification of Education, Paul Freire's Critical Marxism and the Theft of Education, for Freire, learning to read or other academic pursuits was little more than a cover for his objective, raising up Marxist political consciousness for the purpose of creating a cultural revolution. 
right? The Marxist indoctrination is on strong display in Freire's magnum opus, Pedagogy of the Oppressed, which, which teaches students and teachers to die and be resurrected into a Marxist consciousness and engage in the permanent struggle. Right? Freire wanted students to be groomed into learners who basically knew two things. One, to view the world from the standpoint of the oppressed. And two, to denounce the, cult the current status quo as dehumanizing from that standpoint and become activists for a more equitable society. And you should be reading there, Socialist, Communistic, and Critical Social Justice. Freire based his work not on educational scholarship, but on people such as Karl Marx, Vladimir Lenin, Che Guevara, Fidel Castro, Mao Zedong, Herbert Marcuse, and George Hegel, to name a few. Right? This actually holds up in Canada. As the Fraser Institute reports, it says, quote, one of the most popular textbooks used in education schools is Paulo Freire's Pedagogy of the Oppressed. Modern day education professors are almost to a person drawn to this philosophy because it appears to fit with an emphasis on social justice. However, what students, particularly from those, um, th those from uh, disadvantaged backgrounds really need are knowledge rich and orderly classrooms. So if you're wondering how the public schools got so woke, it's not accidental, it's by design. Right, Freire and his disciples are one of the prime source materials in the teachers' training colleges. As Dr. Lindsay points out, Freire then is, in a meaningful sense, the father of woke, because going woke means learning to see structural oppression in virtually everything in order to denounce it, like a process of waking up to a hidden horrible world. Freire's assume the oppression is there and then aim to groom learners to see it. This is done through um, programs in public schools, such as Social Emotional Learning, SEL, and Drag Queen Story Hours, right, which are used to groom young impressionable minds into good social justice warriors and Marxists. These are not accidental. They're vitally linked to, to Freire's pedagogy. And by way of illustration, to show that this is not just a hypothetical, but is an actual issue on the ground right now, Take, for example, a recent article from National Review on March 27th of 2023 that starts off saying, quote, two plus two no longer equals four, according to members of the Ontario Mathematics Coordinators Association, who consider the equation to be a white supremacist dog whistle instead of a basic mathematical truth. That's right. Children in Ontario today are being taught that basically mathematics is racist and white supremacist. Now, aside from the concerns of the ideology being jammed down impressionable kids, this sort of thing obviously um, also results in kids being poorly educated, right? The author notes that, quote, not even half of sixth grade students meet provincial math standards at present. 52% of ninth graders met the bar during the 2021-2022 uh, school year, down from 75% just three years prior. According to the provincial standardized testing administered by the Education, Quality and Accountability Office, woke math advocates have doubled down in the, f in, in the face of falling performance, seeking to incorporate so-called indigenous knowledge systems and anti-racism. So kids are being churned out as radicalized little social justice warriors who have no clue how to do math. And this makes sense. 
as to why so much of the radical left can't even understand basic economics. Math curriculum in Ontario and in other places is now known as discovery math, where students are encouraged to invent their own ways of solving math problems. And we'll see how that works out once they have to pay their bills or do their own banking. Right? There's no hope in the so-called um, conservative party either. Ontario Premier Doug Ford campaigned to roll back discovery math, but since his time in office, woke math is still littered all over the curriculum. The new curriculum was prefaced with a disclaimer that math, quote, has been used to normalize racism and marginalization of non-Eurocentric non mathematical knowledges and a decolonial anti-racist approach to mathematics education makes, vis makes visible its historical roots and social constructions. <sighs> that still sounds super uber-woke uber to me, right? The truth is that secular conservatism is not the solution. And Christians would be foolish to put their hopes in secular politicians who do not have the required worldview to truly see things rightly and make reforms that are, that are from a biblical worldview. The only way that happens is for Christians to be equipped with a robust biblical worldview through Christian education and for those to go out into the workplace and politics and all spheres of society knowing God's word and design and acting on it to live it out. The change must be from the bottom up, which is why Christian education is such a vital part. But before we move on, we must look squarely at what public education is actually achieving with the children. Right? It's radicalizing children. The diabolical roots go deep with Freire, more than you know, I can get into here. One of his chief influences was the Marxist Dom Helder Camara, very important um, person that almost nobody knows. Um, he had two protégés, two very notable protégés. Guess who they are? One, Pope Francis, and none other than the World Economic Forum's Klaus Schwab. That's right. And there's a reason why our world looks the way it does today. And there's history to back it up. Right? The world isn't the dark place it is today by accident. And the public education system was one of the means by which the global communo-fascist elites remade it. Right? Quote, in Freirean education, all education becomes a political education, with educators as facilitators into critical or Marxist consciousness, so that all knowledge becomes political knowledge understood on Marxist terms. In fact, Freire goes, Freire goes on to say in the politics of education to explain that true education is political education. Specifically, true literacy is political literacy, facilitated by conscientized teachers. And this is what the Marxists have achieved in our schools over the last 40 years. This is why it's not an uncommon story of children sent to public schools or colleges and universities who come out as radicalized leftist activists who don't actually understand anything or even know how to truly think. Right? That was never the goal of their education. Freire himself writes in The Politics of Education that only a mechanistic mentality holds that education can cease at a certain point or that revolution can be halted when it attains power. To be authentic, revolution must be a continuous event. Otherwise, it will cease to be revolution and will become scaloric bureaucracy. 
Now, the goal of Freire's process is not at all to get students uh, to learn to read. That's the sales pitch. That's the con. It is to get them to recognize that their political context and their own rules as conscious participants in transforming it in, Mar in a Marxist fashion with the help of educators as the facilitators in the process. The method is to intentionally repurpose and misuse existing academic uh, curricula as the vehicles for this process. Now, if you don't know what the big deal is about the ungodly and demonic ideology of Marxism, I highly recommend that you go back and read or listen to my articles or episodes on Marxism and social justice. But suffice it to say that if you still think that public education is somehow neutral, you need to wake up and smell the gulags, comrade. It is not. It never was. And these days, it is overtly taken over in large part by an ideology that is anti-Christian and hates God. Right? Do we want to send our kids into that? Now, there are some who will try to gaslight this point by saying, oh, but you're telling people to make their decision out of fear of what if their children get brainwashed or radicalized. Christians should not make decisions out of fear, but rather out of faith. To which I would say a hearty amen to the last sentence and firmly rebuff the first. Right? It is not acting out of fear to protect your children from dangers. It's actually an act of faith, since that's one of the things that God gives parents to do. Right? If I obey God's command to protect my children, um, that's an act of faith. I can protect my child from drinking poison without being poison phobic. Right? It's actually right and good for us to protect the vulnerable from dangerous things. Right? And much of the prevailing ideologies that govern um, most public schools are like poison. The problem is that most haven't read their labels to see the big skull and crossbones that's on them. And many others have unfortunately actually drank some of it themselves. Now, the proof is in the pudding. At the end of the day, right? What has been the result of the many years of public education? Has it been increased educational standards and learning outcomes? Right? Has it been uh, and led to the flourishing society where people know the basics of their God-given freedoms and rights? Does the citizenry understand how their law systems are supposed to work so that politicians and governments are actually held accountable by a knowledgeable society? Right? Has it led to more people being discipled in the truth of a Christian worldview so that they would recognize God's design in nature and give him glory? No. The Nehemiah Institute has conducted several surveys over the years, beginning in the mid-80s to determine the worldview outcomes of Christian kids in public school, private school, classical Christian education, and homeschool. Right? Their scale is from 0 to 100, and it ranks how well the students have a Christian worldview. According to their scale, 70 and above qualifies as a biblical Christian worldview. Scoring 30 to 69 is considered moderately Christian, and below 30 is basically a secular humanist, right? It includes questions which are indicative statements that students rank their level of agreement or disagreement on, and such as like questions like, you know, human life as a real and unique person begins at conception, or premarital sex is always wrong and should not be condoned by society. 
and you know centralized government is inefficient and is counterproductive for society as a whole or the most effective way of curbing inflation is for the government to impose wage and price controls right now that's the types of questions that they would ask the results of these surveys are actually staggering in 1988 for public for um, Christians in pu in public schools right Christian students in public schools the score that they got guess what it was the score that they got was only 36.1 barely enough to be considered moderately Christian however by 20 uh, by 2001 right the score was 7.5 right within 13 years Christian kids in public schools were on average coming out as pagan in terms of their worldview, right? The Christian kids in private schools, um, in private Christian schools, they did somewhat better, scoring 47.2 in 1988 and then dropping to 22.4 in 2001. So even in the Christian private schools, they went from moderately Christian to secular humanists within 13 years. Thus, just sending your kids to any old private Christian school is clearly not enough, right? They must also be uh, committed to imparting a robust Christian worldview and intentional about that, which many Christian schools sadly do a poor job of uh, uh, because it's not a central part of their curriculum. Now, there is some good news though. The Nehemiah Institute reported on what they called worldview schools as the exception, the only exception actually, right? These included classical Christian schools and homeschools. In 1988, Christian kids in these worldview schools ranked at 61.2 on the high end of the moderate Christians. And by 2001, they ranked at 70.1, just inching into that biblical Christian worldview category. Dan Smithwork comments this way. He says, quote, however, with nearly each subsequent year of testing, we found the understanding of the Christian worldview by students to be lower than the year before. This trend has continued through year 2001. The only exceptions to the decline were Christian schools that had adopted a specific worldview materials in their curriculum. These are primarily schools known as principal approach or classical Christian and homeschools. I believe students from these schools represent the true remnant and hope for the future, but they represent less than 5% of the total students tested. It was G.K. Chesterton that said famously that if we don't stand for something, we'll fall for anything. And this is exactly what has happened with Christian kids in public schools and even in many private schools that operate exactly like the government schools just with like a little prayer and Jesus sprinkled in. Only in schools with educators who have a defined Christian worldview that are successfully passing that worldview on to their students is this different. And this doesn't come about automatically. So don't think that I'm just arguing for parents to take their kids out of public school and drop them into any old private Christian school. As Louis Burkhoff and Cornelius Van Til noted, quote, Christian education is one of the means which God is pleased to use for working faith into the heart of a child, for the calling of an incipient faith into action, and for guiding the first faltering steps of faith. It teaches the child to flee from sin and to strive after holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. That's from their Foundations of Christian Education. Now, although some might think that my viewpoints here are radical, nothing I'm co covering here is new or novel. 
about Christian education, right? These are rooted in very old ideas that come from scripture. If someone has a different viewpoint, that's fine, that's fair. But I'd graciously challenge you to make a more compelling argument from scripture, history, and reason. I don't believe there is one. Why then does this seem so new and radical to this generation? It's because we have forgotten the old paths. But that is one of the main reasons why our society looks so much weaker now than generations past, which um, didn't have anywhere near as high the divorce rates, crime, single parents, uh, households, and fatherlessness, right? The family is the building block of society. And where there are strong, godly families, there will be strong, godly societies because society is simply a community of families held together by a common culture. And if there is to be any hope for the recovery of strong families and thereby rebuilding a strong community and countries that have just laws, honest politicians, and lower crime, then we must recover the biblical vision and priority of the family and particularly the father's role in leading their families. We must also recover the father's commitment to give their children a distinctly Christian worldview. And Christian ministers and pastors must proclaim this unabashedly from the pulpits and help to equip the saints for the work of this ministry. Christian parents cannot continue to assume that they can just sow their kids into secular education and expect to reap another thing. As Paul noted in Galatians 6-7, God is not mocked. Right? Burkhoff and Vantel put it this way, they say, quote, can Christian parents reasonably expect their children to be imbued with a spirit of true religion if they persist in sending them to a school where for 24 hours a week they are taught in a spirit that is fundamentally irreligious, if not positively anti-Christian? The answer can only be a decided negative. An experience will bear out the correctness of this answer. America today, and I'd say Canada and many other nations, is reaping in its churches what it has sown in its schools. And it has sown through the secularized schools and it is reaping a purely naturalistic religion. Now, we're not without a guide on this task. God has given us his plan and instructions to appropriate a, a Chesterton quote. It's not that it's been tried and found wanting. It's that it's been tried and found difficult, so we abandon it. Or perhaps more accurately in our days, it's been lost unknown and not even dry. Right? There, there are many great resources on truly Christian education, such as from um, Veritas Press, Canon Press, Basecamp Live, Doug Wilson has written a whole bunch of stuff, Logos Press is also really good, the Association of Classical Christian Schools, and Vodi Bakum as well has written several books on this. Everything from homeschooling to Christian private schools to Christian classical education, right? their resources. And I'll leave some links in the description. I'd recommend that we start making use of them and do your research because this is important stuff. It's the next generation and what the future of our societies will look like for decades and maybe even centuries to come. So let's not neglect this. All right, so I hope that's given you some good food for thought on this topic. And it was a long one, but until next time, Soli Deo Gloria. Thanks for listening to the Theotivity Podcast. If you found this content helpful or edifying, please leave a review on Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Also, follow us on social media and consider sharing this episode to help Theotivity reach others as well. 
Check out Theotivity.com for resources, info on how to support, and subscribe to our monthly newsletter to stay up to date on all the latest content. Until next time, live and create to the glory of God.